from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Monday, January 8th. I hope you are drying out from the rain in the south and the snow in the north. We had a big storm move across the country over the weekend. Of course, tonight we have the big football game, the national playoff, uh, the championship game for college football. I think it's what Michigan and Washington Huskies. I'm not a Michigan fan, so I'm going to go Washington on that, though I just don't believe that they're the number one team in the country. That system is broken. We got a great show for you today, though. Here, two fantastic guests. I am really excited. First up, we have Pablo Miller. He is an HR guy, started a company called Remoti, and they do international HR. It's an amazing business. I was blown away. He's also an expert on the employee experience, which he's calling EX, and how that leads to greater satisfaction and retention. After that, Alan Eagle, he was with Microsoft for, uh, not Microsoft, Google for many, many years and was the speechwriter for the CEO, Eric Schmidt, and has written many other books or several books on one called How Google Works and Trillion Dollar Coach. An amazing interview with him about his new book on excellence and mental discipline. And he's going to play the Quick 10. So it's a great cram-packed show and we're going to get started. We are back in again. Thank you so much for being with us on this wonderful Monday. If it's not wonderful, you know, that's a choice. You can choose to make it wonderful. Speaking of wonderful, I'm excited to introduce my first guest, Pablo Miller. He is the founder of a company called Remoti. They are an end-to-end platform for companies in the HR space for search, hiring, and then also importantly, retention of the talent. He has a global team of experts that help uh, provide the training and the resources regardless of their position or location. And they're working on a new term, which is employee experience. They call it EX. We will ask a lot about it. Pablo, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. And uh, thank you so much um, for having me. I'm really excited for, for the chat today. Likewise. So you are based out of the UK. Let me just kind of take that off the table first. Uh, are there significant differences? I know there's some minor differences in laws and stuff, but are there significant differences between European and American, not just not HR, but kind of where we are in the world right now? Are there quiet Twitters also in the UK uh, is also 50% of the UK job uh, ta- workforce dissatisfied. 
Is it the same there as it is here? Just a lot of people kind of pissed off and sort of marginally doing their jobs. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so Remote is actually based out of London and also Bogota, Colombia. And the idea that we do is that we actually help U.S. and U.K. companies build teams all around the world uh, with a focus in Latin America. Um, and what we have found, obviously, after the pandemic is that a lot of, let's say, you know, these pissed off employees that you mentioned, um, they don't want to be walking the streets of London anymore. They want to be in Sao Paulo. They want to be in Bogota. They want to be in La Paz. And that is exactly what Remori does, is that we're able to allow these you know, remote workers to work anywhere in the world. Um, and the companies, we're also able to connect them to employees that maybe were based in London. All of a sudden, they're based in Brazil. Um, access to amazing talent. Alongside, obviously, helping local people in you know, Colombia, Brazil, find jobs in the US or in the UK. Um, so this whole kind of pissed off employee, we get it, we hear you, and this is why we exist, you know, in order to bring kind of international opportunity locally. Excellent. Wow, you did a great job of switching that answer to uh, talking about yourself. That was well done, Pablo. That's a good skill. Uh, and I'm totally serious. That I mean, that's a textbook on how to operate. You answered my question and made yourself look like the the savior, and so. Well done. All right. So go into a little bit more about EX and the employee experience and how you're making that better. One of the biggest problems that I think we have in life when we, have, when we argue in our personal life and professional life is actually communication. And when we look at kind of recruiters, we have a really bad reputation because we don't communicate properly. You know, we don't give the best candidate experience, the best client experience. Um, so what we've done is that we've built a communication app, which brings in one place the candidate, the client, and the recruiter. And all of the, let's say, interviewing of, uh, so the, 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 the planning of interviews, the debriefs, um, everything is in one place. So it ensures the best candidate experience um, possible. And obviously, you know, looking for work, isn't always the nicest of experience. You're nervous or you're frustrated or, you know, something's going on in your life. So having an app which just streamlines the whole communication piece for the candidate, it gives the candidate the best um, candidate experience. Secondly, you know, one of the other products that we have is um, retention products. Um, so once we actually find you work, you know, people don't actually realize, okay, how do we retain this? You know, the modern workforce, um, very different to what, let's say, our, our of our, our parents were used to. You know, our parents would say, go work in the local company, stay there for 40 years and wait for your pension. You know, these millennials like to work somewhere three, six months, uh, you know, receive a pay rise, a different title. So, you know, building innovative products to help the retention of this modern workforce allows, you know, extremely great, um, you know, candidate experience. Uh, I have been amazed at the change that has happened from one generation to the next in terms of the expectations. When you're talking to young people now, do they realize or do they even hope for nine different careers during their life? Is that something that they're looking forward to or do they look at that and go, oh, damn, that sucks? <laughs> it's a great question. One of the main problems that we have of our generation is that the needs look kind of instant gratification. Um, you know, normally, you know, anything that's worthwhile in life, you've got to be patient, you've got to work hard at it. And we find a lot of, let's say, remote work, especially after the pandemic, there's just so much out there, so much opportunity. Um, you know, people, folks weren't patient. Folks didn't want to work hard. They just 
you know, started working a couple of months later, they want a promotion or they want to work on a different product or they want a different job title. You know, so it, it is extremely different. And, you know, I think that mindset, we need to be cautious of that as, as we move forward. Yes, I think it's going to become... Well, let me ask you, is it becoming a bigger or a smaller problem? Are we having a happier or a less happy workforce a year from now? That's a great question because everyone, you know, again, keep repeating after the pandemic, but after the, let's say, let's call it the post-pandemic, post-resignation, you know, uh, community. They all said, look, I want to work remote. I don't want to commute. I want to save money on lunches, save money on clothes. I want to work from anywhere. And then all of a sudden, they start missing, let's say, kind of the office banter, the office, you know, speaking to someone by the water fountain. And a lot of people are actually asking for a hybrid solution in their workplace. You know, they want to make, you know, they want to go for drinks with their buddies on Friday. Um, they want to, you know, have office gossip. Um, so right now, it's hard to tell what, what is the, you know, what makes a happy workforce because, you know, pe people do want to communicate with their colleagues and do want to see them. And so this is why I think we're seeing, you know, quite a high rise of return to work, but also the hybrid model is probably what is best suited for the modern workforce. What do you truly believe, Pablo, about remote work? Do you really, really deep down in your soul when the lights are off and it's three o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep, do you really believe that people work as hard at home when they're not supervised? Really believe that? So, yeah, okay. So I have to put like my right hand on the Bible here. I think the following. I think when you're young and you just graduate, I don't think remote work is the way forward. I think you always need a mentor. You also you always need to look up to someone and you always need to kind of be guided and you need to see what good work looks like. I struggle to see how that works um, by you just graduating from college and then working from your room or from a co-working. So I think for young people coming out, it's imperative to you know, have some office experience. There's then say you're kind of a mid-person, mid I think that's when remote work comes in. Let's say you, know, you're, you just had a child, you know, spend more time with your family, you, know, you work in a business, you know, especially for a lot of these coders, that is more an output as opposed to kind of you know, delivering you know, nine to five. I think that works. And then thirdly, for more senior folks, I do believe they should be back in the office. You know, I think if you're a senior person, you need to be um, talking to your junior team. You need to also be mentoring. Um, you need to have a you know, pulse on what's happening in the business. So I think it's that middle ground where I think really remote work is effective. For folks just outside of college, I, I don't think so. And then for really senior people, I think they need to be with their team. And that's my honest opinion. I think that's very good. I, I kind of agree with you. In the middle, uh, they do have the the smarts to actually get the work done i don't believe the youngsters do and i do think that senior management needs to be in the office so what about with hiring how important do you think this is in my going out and getting a new superstar how much am i willing to bend on this do i kind of give in a little do i you know, everyone else is in the office three days a week. They want to be in the office two days a week. Do I let my superstar do that? I, you know, I have a really good example today. You know, I've got a team here that they can work from home on Wednesdays. And, you know, obviously today, you know, today 
they wanted an exception. And I just said, no, look, you know, you may be my superstar salesperson, but these are the rules and the rules are for everyone. So I think you need to be, yeah, if you're going to have a hybrid model, if you have a work from home model, um, you've got to be consistent for your superstars or less performing uh, folks and ensure that everyone um, works to the best of their capabilities. What's the HR market like in Europe and in UK specifically right now? Or is it uh, looking for talent? Is talent on shortage like it is here in the United States? Uh, what about the UK? Yeah, great question. I think right now in the UK, you know, we traditionally, well, with outsourcing, you know, let's say to Poland, Ukraine, obviously India. And what's happened now is that they've obviously given the geopolitical crisis. They are looking for alternative ways to hire. Um, so um, we're finding that more UK companies are starting to look at Latin America. Um, well, number one is quite interesting because it basically allows them to have almost 24-hour coding because if you have a UK team, you know, they'll be working at X amount of time. Then in the evening for them, you then got the LATAM team working. So what we're finding in the UK market is that people are looking for alternative um, talent and alternative time zones uh, to hire people. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit, Pablo. Tell us about Remoti in terms of an entrepreneurial endeavor. How'd you get the idea for it? What'd you do first? How did you get started? Take us back in history. Amazing. So as you can hear from my accent, it's very British, very Colombian name, Pablo. Um, so I was brought up in the UK. Uh, my mom is Colombian, my father, very English guy. Um, and I saw that I was very fortunate to have access to great education, uh, great network, just by being in the UK. Um, and then I thought, imagine building a platform that from anywhere in the world, you get access to amazing um, businesses, amazing jobs, amazing uh, financial products, amazing uh, payment products. And that's where I felt that there needed to be a HR platform that connects international opportunity locally and then gives you access to you know the amazing products that can help you improve your english amazing financial products you know if we look at a lot of our workforce that we have at the moment for our clients actually in latin america you know 80 percent of them don't have life insurance you know 40 percent of them don't even have um, any financial products so if we're able to you know get these young millennials that have you know gone from earning you know one grand to five grand coding and access to great jobs, great financial products. We felt that we were in something. So I like to see the platform to have a you know, really strong social mobility element to it that it basically doesn't matter who you are, where you are, you know, what your name is, what religion you are. Um, you have access to amazing jobs that will then remunerate you really well, that will then give you, you know, financial stability. Um, and then, you, you know, what they say, one man's spending of another man's income and then, you know, getting U.S. dollars into South America for these some of the local economies and, amazing thing because it means that there'll be more money in circulation so that was kind of my idea that you know i was so fortunate that you know i was born in the uk um and had access to all these great opportunities there's a lot of people in south america that don't or or in asia so imagine having a platform that brings that all together but that didn't describe a light bulb moment was it an evolving idea yeah, so tr- initially we, we just started as a, as a tr- traditional recruitment company in terms of just matching people. And then the pandemic hit. And then we had, you know, companies that were always hiring locally that said, you know what, we read the cut cost. Um, I know you've got a team in Latin America. Can you connect us? And we're like, yeah, sure. And then they were then saying, okay, but we don't want to actually set up a legal entity to hire a team of four or five. Can you hire them on behalf of us? We're like, sure. And then number three, they've been clients asking us, hey, we don't really understand the culture of these folks. 
can you help us with re- you know retaining them? And I was like, aha. Uh-huh. And that was when Ramoni was that was the light bulb moment. But it's like, you know, you can't just start a team um outside of your comfort zone, right? And outside of where, who you know where and what you know. So imagine if, you know, remote work is here to stay, you need to have a company that's gonna be able to solve all, all three problems. And that was my light bulb moment. So listening to the marketplace told you what to do. Absolutely. You know, so many times you receive companies that just build products and services because they think it sounds good. But, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in boring companies that, you know, solve big problems. And so, like, you know, we didn't really write out a long business plan for this. We just listened to what our clients were asking for and packaged that all together and offered it to them. And from there, we were able to win you know, big clients such as Visa and becoming one of their main suppliers for the whole of Latin America by simply just putting together all those free services. All right. And how do you have the Latin American contacts? I, I understand that your mother was from Colombia. And st- I don't, I didn't hear. Did you go there for a while? Did you, is there a partner from there? Um, no. So it was a great question. So I, uh, I, um, I came here on a holiday, right? And, you know, brought up in London all my life and I came to Bogota. And then I saw, you know, something really amazing was happening, which was like the technology revolution here. We saw the Uber arriving, Airbnb was here. You know, there's 52 million Colombians and, you know, big institutions here all still being run by spreadsheets. So I thought, imagine if, you know, technology can come in here. It's going to be a great market. And I started seeing that that was happening. But really what happened was that when I came here, I saw what, the second generation Colombians look like, you know, they've got perfect English, so studied abroad, uh, they work for big companies and they came here locally and were like, you know, I want to do something fun, I want to do something different and the quality of the talent was amazing. So to become an HR entrepreneur, Pablo, will describe the route. You're interested in HR. You want to start an HR business, some sort of agency, maybe a placement agency, a, a training. You just don't know. Describe the path to becoming a successful HR entrepreneur. As, as cheesy as it sounds, if you're going to be working HR, one of the most important things actually to respect HR. You know, I think one of the hardest things to do in business is actually try and sell into HR. These are, you know, people in this area are very detailed orientated. They do not like BS, you know, so to be successful in this sector, it's all about the execution. So you really have to deliver on what you promise. And so I've been able to build a, a very mixed and balanced team where we've got you know, overly salesy people that, you know, can obviously describe what we can do, but then also on the execution team, they're extremely pedantic, extremely detailed orientated, you know, extremely, you know, obsessed with experience. So I think to, to make it in, in HR, you need to respect the industry. You've got to follow protocol. You've got to also understand that HR isn't what it was 30 years ago. Um, and you need to have a team that really delivers on what they promise. All right. And so, but what's the career path then? How do I take an internship? And, you know, I have the respect that you mentioned. So what, should I take 10 years of jobs? <laughs> That's a great question. I think, I think for me, to understand what really, you know, what good HR looks like, join a startup. Because really, all startups make the same mistake. They build a HR team too slow. 
um, and they only actually build a HR team when there's problems, right? And so when you can see a HR team that's being built from scratch, when they're literally implementing their, their HR policies and you know, coming up with them on the spot, that's really when you, when you can kind of, let's say, go back to first principles, understand really what HR should do. Because you know, traditionally, we thought HR would just be you know, the, at the bottom of the office, you know, just filing out paperwork. But really, HR now set culture. HR now build career development plans. HR now ensure that everyone's doing their job. And so therefore, I would join a startup, be close to the decision makers, the implementation person, and, you know, just be a sponge. Pablo, let me tell you a little story. When I was starting my first business back in my 20s, so 30 years ago now, uh, we had a friend who just kept showing up to our office. Actually, uh, we had a duplex. I lived on half of the side uh, the duplex and the other half was the office. We had a fax machine. And so this one guy just kept showing up there to use the fax. And after six months or so of him being there every day, we figured we might as well just start him giving him a, you know, a paycheck because he was in fact working for us. He, he weaseled his way into a job. And of course, the first thing, the first task once he was hired was figure out how to hire someone so that you can get a paycheck, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And as we grew, exactly as you said, the emergency of the day grew the HR department. And that's a disaster, you know, my goodness. And we were a... An employee-based business. We were a seasonal business where we had to hire hundreds of employees for seasonal work, and so mm. being good at HR was critical to us. And as for an entrepreneur, it's almost impossible. HR is the last thing you think of, isn't it? <laughs> it is until you get sued, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's like you know, whatever, whatever. And then all of a sudden, it's like way there's protocol for this uh, and when you're going to lose a high performer because you know you haven't identified their um, you know how to retain them or that you've not given them a salary review so I think it's imperative it doesn't matter if you have a business uh, placing blue collar workers or you know executives or if you have a call center or bank there needs to be structure there needs to be someone policing culture there needs to be someone retaining people there needs to be someone pushing people and so, therefore, if you're looking for a head of people building an HR department, you're probably a couple of months or years too late. Wow, that's a great line. Does culture need to be policed? It doesn't need to be. The culture, if you have good culture, it doesn't. Because if you've got good culture, it's something that's intrinsically in your business, the way you treat customers, the way you treat uh, suppliers, the way you treat you know, the industry uh, colleagues. So therefore, if you have a culture where you've hired correctly, you've hired people that, you know, do match what you're looking for, you don't need to. But when it, when it is police, then you've got a bad culture business. Very well said. Pablo, how do we find out more? Follow online, hire, remote, all of the above, please. Absolutely. So please go on our website, which is www.remote.io. We're also on LinkedIn, just if you, if you just spread Ramadi. Also Instagram um, on, on IG. And uh, we're always looking to help companies that want to expand and build an international team. Fantastic. Great stuff. Thank you so much for being with us today. And 
uh, I wish you success here in the new year. Thank you so much, sir. And thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for all the listeners. And we will be right back. Well, that's a, that's a, a wonderful question. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. That's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back, and still, yes, I appreciate you very much being with us. I'm very excited to introduce my next guest. Please welcome Alan Eagle to the show. Boy, has he had an impressive career, 18 years at Google, and has then gone out and become a high-powered executive coach and consultant, has written four books, all very well-reviewed on that Amazon place. All great topics, one called How Google Works, another trillion-dollar coach, uh, two, uh, uh, a trillion-dollar coach playbook, and then also the book we're going to talk about today called Learned Excellence. Alan, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. I'm doing great this morning. Really excited to talk to you. All right. Learned Excellence, Mental Disciplines for Leading and Winning from the World's Top Performers. Do the top performers get that way? Are they born that way? How important is the education piece? Well, yeah, that's the thesis for our book. I co-authored it with uh, Dr. Eric Potterat. Uh, Eric was 20 years with the Navy SEALs and spent the last 10 as their lead psychologist, has worked with numerous athletes, business leaders, obviously military personnel. And the thesis of our book is that what separates the good from the great, the top performers from everybody else, is their mental approach. It's their mental discipline. And uh, as we started to get into this, we really realized that, look, anybody can improve their game through their mental disciplines. And uh, we broke it down into five different mental disciplines that people can practice and apply uh, to just to get better, regardless of what your game is and regardless of whether you're thinking about your career and your workplace, but also at home or in your community or with your friends. All of these disciplines, we not only describe them, but we give you ways to practice them. So just like the world's top performers, the best athletes, you can practice being better mentally. I love it. I want to go through the five, Alan. My first exposure to this ever was in 11th grade. And I remember on the front row, Jeff, my friend, who ended up being the valedictorian, and I went to one of the better high schools in the country, and he ended up at Yale and Harvard, uh, was sitting there with his eyes closed, and someone asked him, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm imagining getting my 99 back. What do you think? Was he was he on to something even at the age of seventeen? Well, one of the things we talk about is is the power of self visualization, and yes, so he absolutely was. And but self visualization comes in uh, in in so many forms. First of all, um, it's not just imagining seeing something, but it's imagining all five senses. Uh, one of the guys we interviewed for the book was a 
a neuro uh, a, a neuroscientist um, uh, sorry a neurosurgeon Dr. Joe Maroon who spent many years as the lead um, physician for the Pittsburgh Steelers and he goes way back and he worked with a guy you may remember Lynn Swan it was one of the most famous yeah. wide receivers in the 70s and 80s and Dr. Maroon would sit next to Lynn on the team bus going to a game and Lynn Swan would be sitting there with his eyes closed and you know talking about to Dr. Maroon about how he was not only seeing the ball, but he was feeling it and hearing it and hearing the crowd. And that sort of visualization sets you up for success, but in a way, it also sets you up for the sort of stresses that can occur uh, when you're in competition or you're in performance. You know, if, if something goes wrong, you've already visualized it. You visualize what you're going to do. You've kind of, in a way, you've been practicing it in your mind for a long time so that when you actually get into the performance moment, it's like you've already practiced it several times. So visualization, yeah, incredibly powerful. And, you know, we all, we all met those people in high school who were just a cut above. And, and some of them had latched on to some of these tricks early. That's why they were performing so well. Alan, let's go through the five. But before that, I have to ask this to sort of clear the table. This is all designed to make me better, right? But what about the preparation that Lynn Swan did? The thousands of reps of sit-ups, pull-ups, you know, going out for deep balls thousands of times practicing, getting two feet in all of those things. What about the preparation? I, I still have to do the preparation for the result to be there. You don't get to mentally cheat, right? Well, right, right. Um, you know, what is this called? Uh, what are we, what am I talking about? Well, everybody has their own physical and intellectual attributes that are, you know, superior athletes are already superior. I can apply all the mental disciplines I want, and I'm not going to go take the field and be a quarterback in the NFL or a center fielder for the San Francisco Giants, you know. That's just not going to happen. But for every person who is that center fielder for the Giants or a quarterback in the NFL, there's a hundred other people who have the same mental, uh, the same physical attributes and intellectual attributes or even better. So what made the person who broke through to the top level, what made them get there? Guarantee you, it was their mental approach to the game. That's what got them to the very top. It's the mental disciplines. You, um, you know, you talk about uh, Lynn Swan doing sit-ups or, uh, you know, any of these athletes and the amount that they, um, they practice. Well, you know, there's, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a trite saying, but it's a cliche, uh, but we all have the same 24 hours and they just make a better use of their time. They get more sit-ups. They do more practice because they're better at time management. And that's just one example of a mental discipline. I mean, you know, Jim, you're, you're super successful. How do you manage your time? Do you think you're good at it? Could you get better at it? That's just one example of how you can be great. Alan, what do you do when it's broken? When the mental is broken, and I'm thinking very specifically of watching my children play sports. I remember my eldest son uh, was a collegiate level wrestler whose team ended up winning national championships and uh, very successful. He's now a high school wrestling coach on the side with a great normal job during the day. I remember he lost state in senior year of high school, came in second and 
10 seconds before he was pinned, he looked me dead in the eye from 110 yards away. He was on the mat. I was up in the stands and we got pinned, you know, and my, another son now great tennis player. And then, you know, that has a set where he ends up crying, you know, cause yeah. every ball goes out. Uh, as a parent, how do I handle that? Number one. And number two, when it happens to me, how do I handle it? Well, gosh, I mean, as a parent, it's gut wrenching, isn't it? Like you just want your kids to succeed it's and the be worst happy. thing in the world. I would rather and I so, hate going and why I just hate it. And yet, and yet this may sound crazy, but maybe one of the best things that ever happened to your son was getting pinned in that match. Because that's when, when you fail is when you get a chance to practice some of these disciplines that we're talking about. So when we were uh, working on our book, uh, Eric and I, we interviewed, I think the number is 32 different high performers from different realms, you know, from military and sports and business and, um, you know, lawyers and doctors and so on. And one of the things we always ask them, because Eric always gets this question, we always get this question when we're talking about the book is, okay, I'm a parent. How can I help my kids learn excellence? And the number one answer was, is give them the opportunity to fail. Now, we're not saying go out of your way and you know, put your kids in a place where they're going to fail, but encourage them to take those risks and then teach them how to handle failure. The number one way you can practice mindset is by failing. Because then what do you do? How are you going to choose? You know, I must practicing be mindset. awesome. I'm like Jedi mindset. I just don't know it yet, Alan. You're going to release my Jedi. I'm going to be able to move my car with my brain at the end of this. (laughs) Well, you know, if you do that, you're going to fail. And then you're going to learn from that. And you're going to say, what did I learn from that? What am I going to do next time I try to move my car? I know. Maybe I'm going to open the door and get in the car. You know what I mean? Mindset, we, we read all about, you probably read those or, you know, heard about these, these books about grit, you know, and, and a growth mindset. And that's all well and good, but how do you practice it? How do your kids practice it? Well, when they fail, when, when they fail, what do you tell them to do? Do you pick them up and hold them while they cry? No, most of the time you might say, get on up. Come on, you're okay. What do you learn from that? What are you going to do next time? Practicing mindset and recovering from failure is all about your attitude, your effort, and your behavior. We talked to, um, we talked to Carly Lloyd, maybe the greatest U.S. women's soccer player of all time, two-time World Cup winner, two-time gold medal winner. And she talked about how in the 2011 World Cup, in the finals, she missed a penalty kick. They lost the match. And how she talked about that experience and how it crushed her for weeks, and imagine how her parents must have felt. And then what does she did to recover from that? Her attitude was, I'm not going to miss a penalty kick again. Her effort was she practiced it like crazy. And her behavior was that she chose a strategy, a different strategy for how to, you know, where to actually place the ball. And then 2015 World Cup, she uh, scored a couple PKs and they won the cup. So failure is an excellent teacher. And that's, I think, as parents, how we can approach it. Give us the five, Alan, please. The learned excellence, five mental, what do we call them, disciplines? Five mental disciplines to learning excellence. Um, First, values and goals. So many people worry about reputation and don't know their identity. It's so simple. Understand your own identity. We walk our readers through a process to create a value credo. 
What do you stand for? What are your values in life? So that when things get tough and you start, you know, people are, are, are barking at you, your friends are complaining at you, or there's gossip or stuff on social media, go back to what do you care about? What's your identity? What are your values? So that's number one. Understand your values and set goals. Set big goals and then work towards them. Values and goals. Number two, like we were just discussing, mindset. Well, let's, couple uh, of let's interesting... dig into this a little bit further yeah. uh, before we move on. You bet. Written? Are are they any good if they're not written? My thing, I don't, I do not have written values and goals. I must admit. I'm sorry, values. Uh, I do have written goals, and my practice. And this may sound silly, but uh, every I need to do it for next year now. Start thinking about it every new year. So right now I haven't done it yet for this year. And I feel kind of bad. Uh, I put them on the back of a business card and the business card lives on the shelf right in front of me. Yeah, that's awesome. And they, and I try to group them. I try to have business, personal, religious, physical, fiscal, mental, you know, the, the big thing, you know, kids Mm -hmm. relationship type stuff. Um, so how am no, I you're, getting you're, great on that? And then I get an F on the values. So I'm going to have to sit down and write me some values. Well, Is it you're great on the mental. Or do I have to have it written? I'll stop now. No, well, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's some research that shows, okay, if you ideate your goals, you're going to accomplish them 43% better than people who don't. If you write them down, the number is 62. Now here's a question for you. Do you share them with others, your partner, your friends, because if you do, now you're going to hit 72% better than people that don't have goals. So do you share them? And some sort of. Uh, my wife knows some of them, but not all of it, for sure. Yeah. Well, there you go. So I'll give you an A with an opportunity uh, for an A+. An a. I, I'm not doing <laughs> the important part, the share. So, all right. Let's move on. to number But, but, but wait, Jim, you asked about values. Here, yeah. here, here's... You know your values, but do you know your values? So yes, you should write them down. Uh, we walk. This is a very powerful exercise, especially you know we're talking about top athletes who they kind of get away from why they're competing. Uh, what are they doing this for? So you know we walk them through a process. Write down your values, share them with others, and you know come up with a value credo that's you know it's about ten words. Um, mine is integrity, family, friends, active, self-aware, nature. Adventure, curious, humor, and fun. I've written them down. And, and now if I, if I ever start to doubt why I'm doing something, go back to those first principles. In, uh, in my previous books here in Silicon Valley, we talk a lot about first principles, you know, running companies from first principles, creating a culture of first principles. It's the same in, in individual performance. And those are your first principles, your written values. Number two is mindset, I think you said. Number two is mindset. Yeah. Um, and you know, mindset is just how you set your mind to something. And it's something that really became in a, a popular term, you know, within the last 20 years or so with, um, with books about, you know, growth mindset or, or a great mindset. And we think there's two insights there about mindset. One is that you have to have a different mindset for different roles. So your mindset, you mentioned your wife, you mentioned your kids, your mindset when you're with your family is going to be very different than when you're at work or you know, doing something like talking to me right now. You're, you're, you have a different goals, you have a different attitude, it's a different mindset. 
So the first thing uh, is to be aware of your different roles and think through what mindset do you want to achieve in each role. As a parent, you know, you may want to be empathetic, you may want to be listening, you may want to be a coach. Um, in the workplace, you may need to be uh, more aggressive. Uh, you may, may need to tell people when they're, you know, there, there's different mindsets. So one, be aware of that. And then think about how you can practice your mindset through your attitude, your effort, and your behavior. That's one of my biggest insights from this book was like, oh, wait a minute, you know, control the controllables. And that's how you activate a mindset, attitude, effort, and behavior. I remember David Letterman talking about the fact that that he was only happy during the hour a day that he was filming the show. And that other than that, I think he was just a miserable person. And I think his wife pretty much affirmed that. I also think about my dad, who I thought of as a kind of amiable, laughing, fun, loving trickster, really smart guy. And I'd go into the office and they think of him as just a son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, my cousins tell the story of looking out the window and they see their dad would pull in the driveway as a long day as a sales leader and how he would get out of the car and, and literally stop for a few minutes, not minutes, maybe, you know, just moments and take a few deep breaths. And he may not have even, he, yeah, he may not have even realized it, but what he was doing was he was changing his mindset. He was getting ready for a new role. And, um, uh, in the book, we have this story of a, one of Eric's clients. Um, she's a CMO at a top fashion brand, and she did not change her mindset. You know, her, her objective was branding at work. Let's be the best brand we can. Let's show the world our brand. And she'd bring that home, and her family became about brand. Her friends became about brand. And, you know, she was miserable, and her family life was falling apart. And, uh, you know, Eric guided her towards understanding, having a different mindset in your different roles and, and, and having, she actually had a, a, a thing she wrote down that when she was on her way home from work, she would read it to help her adjust to a new mindset. So that's the thing about mindset. It's super important. You also have to make sure you're using the right one for the right role. Number three. Number three is process. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, focus on process, not outcome? So often, we are so outcome-focused. This, this went wrong. This, I had a bad outcome. Uh, I, was, I was on a sales call, and it didn't go well, and I lost the prospect. And I'm going to blow up everything. You know, this was just wrong. We got a bad product. We got we to get new marketing material, whatever it is. And, you know, sometimes... You know, think of a Golden Glove shortstop in, in baseball. Sometimes they make an error. They don't blow everything up. They don't go get a new glove. You know, they don't change their workout routine. They, you know, in fact, they have a different attitude. They're like, okay, well, I'm glad I got that out of the way. So the best performers focus on their process and not necessarily the outcome. They trust that the outcome will happen, that the good outcomes will happen if they follow a good process. I'm thinking of Elon Musk and some of the SpaceX launches where the rocket explodes and Elon says it was perfect. Well, yeah, there you go. Like you can't, you can't get a more fiery failure than that. Uh, but you're, you're absolutely right in, in a lot of these. Well, so first of all, it depends what their objective is. In exactly. a lot of these they cases, achieved their objective. It blew up 10 seconds later and that doesn't matter. We got our objective. 
where the objective is to learn and to make the process better. So again, getting back to the idea of failure, it's not that you failed, it's what did you learn from the failure and how can you apply that to your process and update your process. Uh, so it's all about learning and process and much less about outcome. All right. Number four, please, Alan. Well, adversity tolerance. How do you deal with stress in the moment? Uh, Eric literally invented the adversity tolerance um, a training course for the Navy SEALs to teach them how to be mentally tough. And there's 10 different uh, practices we outline in the book about getting better, about handling adversity in the moment. And the cool thing is, is that you can practice these ahead of time. You, you know, so, what are some so the of number 10? Well, the most important one is breathing. Just breathing. You know, if you take four breaths in for about four seconds each, and each time you, you exhale for about four to five seconds, you do that for four minutes, it's kind of the equivalent of taking a Valium. Like, like literally, it, it has the same sort of activity, same sort of action on your body. So if you're in a stressful moment, every single performer we talk to about this, um, you know, Navy SEALs, athletes, business people, uh, in the moment, they breathe when they're running into trouble. Um, we, we spoke with Dina Ryerson, who's a, uh, an attorney general in the state of Oregon, and she was in a very critical case, and she got up to give her closing argument, and she blanked, like literally stood up and couldn't think of a word. So she just stood there for a few seconds and breathed. Yeah, reset her body, gave her the control because she was taking action, and then on she went. So that's, that's just one of them. It, 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 it literally calms your body, just deep breathing. Uh, and there are several others. And the thing about breathing is like, you can just build this into your calendar. Let's say you're, uh, you, know, you have a commute. Well, when you're during your commute, practice deep breathing. Just deep breathe for four minutes. It's, uh, you know, it's great exercise. I mean, it's a great mental exercise. It's a great physical exercise. You, you can just make it part of your routine that it becomes normal when you get into, uh, you know, when you get into stressful, stressful situations. We have several other, other um, taxes like that as part of adversity, adversity tolerance. I better stop breathing because I'm starting to mumble my words. <laughs> I'll let you take a breath for a second. That is yeah. a great one, yes. And uh, I need to practice that one more myself. I'm going to take that advice, Alan. All right, number five, please. Balance and recovery. You know, um, you mentioned earlier you set goals in several different aspects of life. And, you know, we hear a lot about work-life balance and other types of balance. And we talk about how can you actually practice it. And there's several different aspects of life. There's, there's work and career. There's family. There's friends. You know, some of the ones that you mentioned. And even the best performers go out of their way to pay attention to these different aspects of their life and invest time in each of them. Uh, Eric, my co-author, uses the, the metaphor of a house on stilts. A house is built on stilts. Let's say it's on one or two stilts. Well, you just know that is not a stable house. And if all you focus on in your life is one or two things, uh, you're investing way too much of your, you know, your, your mental health and equity in those one or two things. So invest time in three or four things. Maybe just a small amount of time, but be aware of it. Your physical health, uh, your spirituality, your community, your family, as well as your career, which is where most people are performing. 
pay attention to all of those and you'll be much more stable and successful in all of them. And then the other part is recovery. Um, what do you do post-performance uh, to to kind of reset your body. There's many different techniques, you know, simple ones like walking in nature, um, uh, more advanced ones like immersion tanks that a lot of uh, athletic teams and the military certainly does. Or there's simple ones like trying a new hobby and being bad at it. Like we, uh, we talked to Nathan Chen, who won the men's gold medal figure skating uh, title, the gold medal in the Olympics last year. And he brought a, uh, it was in Beijing, and he brought a guitar with him. Because in between practices and in between his competition, he'd go back to his room and play his guitar. And he's not a good guitar player. He's not a musician. But it would relax him because it was something he could enjoy and not be great at. So that's what balance and recovery is about. Excellent. Alan, this looks like one that I need to read. Sounds great. How do we find out more? Follow online, get a copy. Uh, the book is called Learned Excellence. Our website is learnedexcellence.com. And uh, the website tells you more about the book, tells you more about uh, my co-author, Eric, and myself, and lets you buy it from the book vendor of your choice. Excellent. Alan, thank you so very much. One final question. Is this book like fancy, complicated, like Dartmouth stuff, or would a simple Middlebury grad be able to understand the fancy big words? <laughs> Uh, it is, uh, I don't do fancy, big, dense, complicated stuff. I like to make my books accessible and fun and usable. Uh, the book has got a lot of stories. I mentioned a few of them during the course of our conversation. It's got some very practical, at the end of every chapter, it's here, here's some things you can do. No, this book is meant to be used so that, because again, everybody, everybody can up their game through practicing a few, um, a few mental disciplines. Awesome. Alan, thank you so very much. It's been my pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much. We will be right back. Alan's going to play the quick 10. We are back and have another brave contestant willing to play the quick 10. Please welcome Alan Eagle, author of four books and author of the new book called Learned Excellence. He spent 18 years at Google, used to write speeches for Eric Schmidt, and is now an executive consultant. Alan, I hear you're willing and able to play the quick 10. I am. I am. What have I signed up for? Uh, California law requires me to ask, are you currently sober? Are you currently sober? Let me check. Yes. Okay. You don't have to be. We just need to know. Would you like to pause and change your sober status? <laughs> uh, no, it's a little too early in the day to uh, pour myself a drink. So no, I'll stay sober. Thank you. Okay. Would you like to accept the standard wager? I don't know. What is it? It's the bet that everyone else is brave enough to make. Well, then absolutely. Number one, your favorite creativity hack. I learned this one from, uh, you mentioned I earlier in my career, I wrote speeches for Eric Schmidt when he was the CEO at Google. Eric walks into uh, a planning session one day when we were working on a speech and he goes, hey guys, what's the most interesting thing I can say? And I thought that was I, I think about it to this day. To be creative, you want to be interesting. And interesting is actually a pretty powerful world. Pretty powerful world. It's hard to be interesting. So that's my hack. I think about what is the most interesting thing I can say. 
Number two, favorite bootstrapping trick. I don't know if it's much of a trick, but I think, you know, to bootstrap yourself, create, figure out your product or your service, define it, get it out there as fast as you can. I, uh, I tried to start my own company, no, uh, no, no, several no decades stories. ago. No story, okay. Alan, I'm sorry. Just the 10, the 10 words. Okay. Just the 10 words. Yep. Number three, name your top passions. Family, friends, skiing, sailing, hiking. Where's your favorite place to ski? Uh, Palisades Tahoe, my home resort. Number four, the first three steps in starting a business are? Define your product, build your product, sell your product. Number five, the best way to get your first real customer is? Clearly tell your story, make it clear, compelling, and consistent. Repeat it a lot. Number six, your dreamiest technology is? Oh, self-driving cars. Number seven, best entrepreneurial advice? Say yes. Number eight, worst entrepreneurial mistake? Lack of self-awareness. Know what you're good at and know what you're not good at. Number nine, favorite entrepreneur and why? Uh, my first job out of business school, I worked for a company called Octel Communications, headed and started by a guy named Bob Cohn. He was amazing. He's still my favorite entrepreneur. Number 10, favorite superhero? Uh, right now, it's Brock Purdy, quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> All right, Alan, excellent score. While we compute your score and find out the winner of the wager, how do we find out more about you? Get a copy of Learned Excellence. Go to our website, learnedexcellence.com. There's a bit about me, a bit about Eric, a bit about the book, and uh, how you can buy it. All right, fantastic. Alan, oh, I've just been giving your score. Oh, I'm, oh, Alan, I'm so disappointed. So sorry for you. You got a 94, which is an excellent yeah. score, but you have to have a 95 to win the wager. Apparently, the judge from, oh, yeah, Middlebury dinged you a couple of points. And so that was the difference right there. Uh, I think the Nescac judge also didn't score quite. Anyway, Alan, uh, it's Tesla. So we placed standard for a Tesla. So I appreciate you sending us one as soon as it's convenient in your schedule. I'll be, uh, I'm on the website right now ordering it for you. Red. Thank you. Red. Okay. Got Alan, it. thank you so much for being with us and playing the game. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Well, we are out of time for today, but back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Bye now.